Good morning and welcome to this event discussing the UK's standards watchdogs. I'm Hannah White, I'm Deputy Director of the IFG, and this is the second session in our special conference which we're running today on standards in public life. We've already heard from Lord Evans, Chair of the Committee on Standards in Public Life, about the need to change how the UK upholds standards. His committee's report was out earlier this week and that emphasised a call for more independence for various regulators and watchdogs, and that's one of the things we'll be discussing in this session. Yesterday's events in Parliament have again highlighted the serious issues facing our system for regulating standards in public life. The Leader of the House, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has accepted this morning that it was unhelpful of the government to conflate an individual standards case, that's the finding that the former Conservative Minister, Owen Paterson, had engaged in paid advocacy, with Conservative MPs' views that the need for, the, for reform of the common standards system. And we're awaiting further details of what the government thinks should happen now, but it does seem to be clear that they intend to press on with reform. What's not yet clear is whether opposition parties, and indeed the existing standards regulation system in the Commons, agree with the government's critique of the current system. Unfortunately, as Lord Evans made clear this morning, yesterday's events are not an isolated example of the challenges currently facing the regulation of standards in the UK. In just the last year, we've seen the Greensill affair, we've seen the appointment of Gina Collard Angelo as an NED at the uh, Department of Health and Social Care, we've seen controversy over the funding of the, of the Prime Minister's flat refurbishment. All of these things have placed a spotlight on the rules meant to govern how ministers, civil servants, and special operators, uh, special advisors can operate. I'm really delighted to say that we've got a fantastic panel here today to discuss these issues, all of whom are involved in standards regulation and watchdogs in the UK. I'm joined here uh, at the IFG's headquarters in London by Chris Bryant, who is chair of the Common Standards Committee, and he is MP for Rhonda. I'm joined from Norfolk uh, by Dame Shirley Pierce, who's a member of the Committee on Standards in Public Life, CSPL, and former chair of the College of Policing. And I'm joined by Lord Pickles. Lord Pickles, I'm not quite sure where you're joining us from. Um, but Essex, he, glorious Essex. Essex. Um, and he is chair of ACABA, the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments, and of course, a former Conservative MP between 1992 and 2017. Before we start, just a few brief housekeeping notes. We'll be live tweeting the event uh, from IFG events uh, using hashtag IFG standards. Please send in your questions at any time during the event. And we'll have a video and sound recording of the event up on our website in the next 24 hours. Chris, can I start with you? No. <laughs> I mentioned the government's U-turn uh, this morning after yesterday's, uh, what I, I would term, appalling events in the Commons. Um, in your view, start of a turn, what should happen now? We should have a straightforward vote on the Owen Patterson case on Monday. Now, I'm told that that is maybe what Jacob Smog was saying. I'm not sure. I, I, was a bit, I was a bit perplexed by what Jacob Smog said this morning because, I mean, it was diametrically opposite to what he said yesterday. And it, it seemed like he didn't understand the motion that he um, voted for yesterday, which is a bit of a shame in a leader of the House. But um, leaving that aside, I, I, there are two things that need to happen. Undoubtedly, the, the system uh, could improve. There are elements of the code which I think are badly written at the moment, and we on the Standards Committee have been engaged in that work for the last nine months. We've, um, we've been doing an inquiry. Lots of people have given evidence, including the Leader of the House. He didn't say any 
of what he said yesterday in the House when he came before the committee, but anyway, he sort of slightly suggested it. Um, I think there may be, and we're also very close to producing a report on changes to the operation of the code with some suggestions and some outlying of the, the pros and cons of the various options that there might be. I'm happy to come on to those later if, if people want. But um, just one thing I'd say very strongly, we gave Owen Patterson a very fair hearing. We went, as our legal advisor told us, we bent over backwards to make sure he had a fair hearing. I've spoken to um, one retired High Court judge and asked whether he thinks that we did due process and natural justice, and he thinks, yeah, absolutely. So you're saying need for a vote to resolve the individual case separately. You, you, you think there is potentially a case for looking at some reforms. What do you say to the critique about the, uh, what's, what was said a lot yesterday was that there is no opportunity for MPs to appeal within the current system? Well, there is. Uh, I mean, people, I think, misunderstand the, the process. But if I just go back one step, the, the terrible thing about yesterday was you cannot um, change the rules at the very last minute um, for a named individual, that is by definition the opposite of justice, that is injustice, it's the polar opposite of the rule of law. And that's what a lot of Tories are very angry that they voted for now. Um, and that the whip was used was all totally inappropriate. Um, appeal, so what happens is that the commissioner um, does a report, a memorandum it's called, she sends it to the individual for comments um, and either in mitigation or in defence. Um, once she's completed that process, then she sends it to us. And that's when the member appeals, appeals to the committee on the facts. And then the committee decides on the sanction. Now, I've long been in favour of the idea of some form of appeal for the sanction. The difficulty about that is, um, the way the IEP, the Independent Expert Panel, does this, is that they have nine members, three of them recuse themselves on the original decision on the facts, and the appeal is then heard by those three who've recused themselves. I guess we could do that in our committee. We've talked about it many, many times. And the problem is, um, we are constituted as seven lay members and seven um, MPs who are on party political balance. So how do you construct who the three should be? Should the chair not take part in the original decision and always chair the um, appeal? One of my anxieties is people are talking about having a um, a, more like a court system where you can cross-examine witnesses. That requires legal representation. Legal representation cannot, by definition, obviously benefit a wealthy MP as opposed to a poor MP. So you'd have to have legal aid for MPs. And I just note that over the last 10 years, we've cut all legal aid for everybody else. And I think it would look a little bit odd if we were suddenly introducing legal aid for MPs. So um, those are the problems. And I, I think, broadly speaking, though, that we, that's what we may end up laying out in our committee report. There's no need for another committee. Do you think the government is, I mean, from what Jacob Rees-Mogg was saying this morning, it seemed he thought the committee would continue to happen. I guess he's hoping for cross-party engagement with that now. Do you think that's likely? I think there, is, there are no chances of cross-party engagement because of the way yesterday was conducted. Um, uh, I, I would guess that the Labour Party feels that every election um, leaflet has already been printed um, because, you know, uh, inevitably, I'm, I'm afraid all of this feels like return to sleaze. And the worst thing of it all is, um, I think if Owen Patterson had come to our committee and said, you know what, I see it differently, but in the end, of course, you're the committee that judge, judges on the rules. I accept my punishment and sanction. I, will, um, I appeal to my constituents 
um, to judge me on my record on other matters. But the, the truth for constituents like mine is he received £100,000 a year. He lobbied ministers and uh, officials on, on, on behalf of his um, clients. £100,000 is more than the average price of a house in my constituency. So I think for constituents up and down the land, they will just think, hang on, what on earth were Tory MPs doing um, yesterday? And, and to be fair, lots of Conservative MPs have been in touch with me since to say, I'm really, really sorry. We've got into a, ourselves into a terrible, terrible place. Um, I'm afraid the government led them down that route. And just turning to, um, to the Committee on Standards in Public Life report, which was out earlier this week, put a lot of emphasis on the need for independence and protections for independence of uh, ethical regulators. Where do you think this has left the position of the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards? There was a government minister on the radio this morning saying her position was difficult. We've had Conservative MPs implying the same. How can we protect these roles in the, in the way that CSPL says is needed? Well, independence is vital because it's about the trust of the public in the system. And the seven independent members of my committee do an admirable job. Um, some of them are obviously not very happy with what happened in the Commons yesterday. And, and for all I know, they're talking to the press. I don't know. They're, they're at perfect liberty to do so. Um, the commissioner, I think, is a, is, is, she is expert in this field. She is very robust. She is very fair. Um, she is methodical. Um, and um, I think she does a good job, and I stand 100% behind her. It's completely inappropriate um, for government ministers to start demanding that um, she consider her position, and I'm sure she'll still be in place um, right the way through to the end of her contract. And sorry, just one other thing about independence. Um, I think there is a problem for the ministerial code. I'll just highlight one thing for you. So our code, the code of conduct for MPs, says you have to register all gifts and hospitality. Um, but it says that you don't have to if you've received it in your capacity as a minister. Um, so two people might go to Wimbledon final, cost of a ticket £3,000 or something. The, the shadow Secretary of State for Culture has to declare it, but the Secretary of State for Culture doesn't have to declare it, um, or only declares it on the ministerial code, which, which is published nine months to a year later. I just think that that's a nonsense. We need much closer al alignment of the registration, and every member of the public should be able to know um, everything relating to an individual MP and what, um, and what affects the, the decisions that they make. I, I think that's, that's really interesting, and the RFG has done some work uh, this year on the ministerial code and, and, and made some of these observations about the inconsistencies between the two systems. Um, Lord Pickles, can I uh, turn to you now? I think you kindly said I could call you Eric. Um, can I get your reaction uh, to events yesterday in the Commons and, and indeed today, today's um, statements from, from the government? And the government's clearly focused on reform of the, uh, the system for regulating standards within the House of Commons. Do you think that opens up an opportunity for, for wider reforms of the sort that I know that you've um, spoken to CSPL about? Well, I think it's kind of um, uh, interesting that the report that we were... Uh, going to be considered before um, all this started was predicated on the basis that actually there's quite a good system uh, for MPs and for peers, and it's a rest that needed quite a lot of reform. And I think what you approved uh, yesterday is how fragile the whole system is, and it is capable of being completely uh, knocked out of kilter. Um, and, and, 
in a way, it's symbolic of, of the whole system uh, because reforms only come during a crisis. And what the Commons and, uh, and uh, ministers seem to do is they always overreact. They tend to make it uh, worse. Uh, and we, when we're not in a time of crisis, there's generally not an appetite to do something about it. And I think this report is fairly reasonable. On the generality, I was listening to uh, Sir Peter Bottomley uh, talk about the uh, debate, I think it was uh, towards the end of the last Labour government, when, when this system was brought in. And I think a reasonable point is that there has been um, uh, a, a kind of uh, rattling of the system by uh, the ability to be able to recall a member of parliament. And I certainly felt for a while there was like a, a ticking bomb there that sooner or later would kind of problems that we, we saw um, yesterday. Uh, I'm blindsided about what uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Rees-Mogg may, may or may not have, have, have said. My view is they simply need to get on with it. I should declare an interest in that I know uh, Owen Patterson uh, uh, very well worked, sat in, in the cabinet with him, worked with him very closely for um, Ian Duncan Smith's uh, leadership bit. Um, my impression is that this is a man who thinks he's been wrong, um, who uh, doesn't feel he's had his say, and I would move on and let him have his 17 witnesses, let that be open and, and transparent. But the problem that comes this, I mean, of course, he's an honourable man, and um, I, I hope that when these 17 witnesses are heard, um, that um, uh, he will be exonerated. But it's just a possibility it might not. And at that point, the whole thing becomes much worse in terms of what does the Commons decide uh, to do then. Um, I regret that there's a kind of um, uh, the, the politics that are in this. And I think uh, Chris is quite right uh, that uh, people's election addresses will have been written. I mean, the, uh, the, the process of what brought down the major um, uh, government was around sleaze. I was around at the time. It was a dreadful experience. But every slight um, infringement, there's almost a knee-jerk reaction that people want to return to sleaze. And I think we need to try and take as much heat out of this and to try and come, come up with a number of improvements. I thought some of the suggestions that Chris made were, were uh, eminently uh, sensible. In Eric, terms of could I getting just... it back onto a kind of kilter. Oh, my dear friend, of course you can. Sorry, thanks, Eric. Um, just one thing about the witnesses. Um, so it's, it's absolutely standard when people provide character witness evidence to a court that, that that's considered by the court um, in writing. It's very rare for um, witness statements like that to be heard orally, but they have to be heard. And we read all the, all the statements. Um, there was no need to question them because we weren't questioning what they were saying. We know that that's what they said. I, d I couldn't see the, the value of bringing Pretty Patel in um, to explain the rules of the House of Commons to us. I, I mean, I understand that, Chris. I, I have, I've read the report, and I understand the point, and I thought you made it very eloquently. But I think we, we the, well, non political, we are where we are. And I think uh, the only way uh, to try and get back onto some kind of kilter is just to see this thing through. It's obviously a big deal for uh, for Owen. Uh, 
are, are going very much. And sometimes that you have to do things in uh, in politics to arrive at a, a resolution to prove beyond reasonable doubt. Um, but I do understand the points you're making. I'm not uh, suggesting in any way that uh, you've done anything wrong. You, you mentioned, just to go back, Eric, to the start of your remarks, you talked about the fragility of the current system and, and yesterday having demonstrated that. What, what are your thoughts on, on the proposals in CSPL's report to uh, put more of our current arrangements onto a statutory footing? Well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting. I'm quite neutral on, on the idea in terms of what they want to do. Um, but, but I do know, from, um, you know, as a, an ex-party manager, it's sometimes difficult to get uh, parliamentary time to do it. And I wouldn't like us to be in stasis. I mean, I've uh, moved in my responsibility to push the envelope as far as I can, so far as the business appointments are, are concerned. And we've made some uh, quite big strides, hopefully. We might come into them in terms of uh, of being much more transparent, and I believe there's lots I could do. Um, truth is, uh, I'm appointed for a five-year period. It's right that I'm not going to be reappointed for a further five-year period. I want to see some progress, and um, I have to say that um, I very much welcome that the, um, the reporters looked at those levels of. Um, of appointments below ACABA level, uh, because that's the bulk. And uh, no doubt to be controversial, but I don't have the slightest doubt uh, that there is a scandal there, uh, which would make last 24 hours look fairly tame. Uh, I noticed last week uh, a select committee expressing concerns about the activities of, of Facebook in terms of recruiting uh, senior civil servants. Um, I know there are uh, some concerns, but if I was a predatory um, uh, uh, company, the people, I wouldn't be that interested in senior ministers and senior civil servants. It's the people who actually did the job I'd be very interested in. And at the moment, we have no idea. Uh, and there's virtually no control. Some departments do it extraordinarily well. Other departments are, I think I use the word slipshod verging on negligence. Um, you know, 34,000 civil servants uh, leave the civil servants every year. And we're only looking at the best part of a couple of hundred. Now, clearly, 34,000 would need to be looked at. But even if it was, say, 1,000 or even 500, that's probably three or four times greater than the number that we're currently looking at. So I, I would urge the government, if they've got money to uh, to spare, to put some money into terms of of, of training, bringing up to standards and, and doing some monitoring, because if they don't, uh, then they will have the whirlwind of a considerable scandal. And I think that's a really interesting point you make there about the resourcing of our ethical standards system, um, because, you know, certainly as, as ACABA is currently um, uh, configured, you wouldn't have the, the, the resources to carry out the sort of work you've, you've, you've talked about there. <laughs> Well, I mean, ACABA runs on roughly £300,000 uh, uh, a year uh, in terms of uh, officer time and, uh, and full-time uh, employment staff. So, I mean, we have uh, four members of staff to do that. I mean, we have um, tentatively, we've, we have started a reporting mechanism from the beginning of this year 
that we do uh, write to people where we feel there's been a breach. We do publish everything uh, online. And in our annual report, we will be naming those people who have breached uh, uh, the rooms. Um, but if you are to move us on to where we would have an investigatory powers, we clearly need an awful lot more people. Um, and if I was looking to spend money, I think I'd be looking to want to spend money on that training and that monitoring. And I reckon you could probably be able to produce something fairly decent right across government for maybe not much more than half a million pounds, which in the long term, in terms of, of protecting uh, the government's interest, uh, was something that would be uh, very worthwhile. Sounds, sounds like a bargain to me. Um, Dame Shirley, can I come to you now? Obviously, you have um, a great deal of experience, um, both in higher education, also in the, the College of Policing. And I'm interested in, in your reflections, you know, in the last, on the last 24 hours, but also the sort of more recent period we've seen in terms of standards in public life. What do you think that um, our system of government has to learn from other sectors? Yes, I mean, all sectors are different. They all have their own challenges, um, but all of the public sector settings in which I've operated and worked have the seven Nolan principles as at the core. Um, and the purpose of that is to ensure that public interest, um, whatever group of the public it is, is always placed ahead of any personal in, in interest. And each sector has developed its own regulatory framework that meets the needs of that sector. So for example, in health, um, each individual health professional has its own individual relationship with an external body, an accrediting body. So for example, medics have a, a license to practice from the GMC. And if you breach that uh, set of professional standards, you lose your license to practice. In politics, in terms of what, what do we transfer and what do we learn in politics, MPs are elected through a democratic process and you can't just transfer one system uh, work, which works well in one sector to, to this. And the regulatory system must respect that democratic process. Um, but I think what we learn from other sectors is that public trust is strengthened by knowing that there is strong regulation of individuals. And we also know that there is um, relatively high concern about trust in MPs amongst the pub public. So the, 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 the thrust of our recommendations, which um, I think uh, have been fairly well accepted by people um, today, is that we need to strengthen this regulatory system. And there are things that are not strong about the regulatory system at the moment, and this last 24 hours has demonstrated that rather well. So we're arguing for greater independence of the regulators and some being put on a statutory footing that aren't at the moment and see the benefits of that. Stronger and clearer rules and a move from a con culture of convention, uh, which seems not always to be robust, um, maybe unfortunately, but a move from convention to a culture of greater compliance. Thanks very much. And Chris, I think you wanted to come in. Just on convention. I used to be a priest in the Church of England, and one of the hilarious things was every year there'd be a terrible row in the congregation about what we did on Good Friday. And the vicar was nearly always the only person who could really remember. 
Um, and he said, no, this is what we've always done. Honestly, yes, yes, we've always used incense. No, no, honestly, you're completely wrong, definitely. Um, and so the vicar always got to decide. And it's a bit like that, I think, sometimes yeah. with conventions, that nobody can quite remember what the convention was. And not least, at the moment in Parliament, one of the strange, I, I often refer to Parliament as a community, one of the strange things is, we've got very little corporate memory. We've had a, an enormous turnover of MPs since 2015. Um, uh, lots of them were there for two, some people were there for two years, and then another election, and then another election, and then we've had COVID. So there's very little memory of what these conventions are anymore. And that's problematic, because it means government always goes, no, honestly, we always had incense on Good Friday. And I think one of the interesting things, though, is if, if you argue that you, know, you need to write down the rules, how do you ensure that you've got cross-party buy-in to the changing of those rules? Oh, I think there might be a problem with your microphone. We'll just sort that out. <laughs> Are you talking to me? Sorry, I, I was I, putting, that, putting that to Chris, but, um, uh, sorry, Dame Charlie, did you want to come in? Well, I, I mean, I would only say that you've got to ensure that you have got cross-party involvement in the process of setting and determining the rules. Um, yeah. yes, you've got to yes, have a process of developing My a system died. that has buy-in. <laughs> uh, yes, because obviously, otherwise, the government at any point, because by definition it has a majority in the House of Commons, it can just rewrite the rules every single time. So you want to have a set of, a set of systems, and that has been the British way of doing things, um, that stands the test of time. And, and incidentally, just on the present system, it was only actually introduced by Andrea Leadsom on the 7th of January 2019, having seven lay members who had votes on the committee. So, and, and there is a problem. If you keep on changing the system all the time, that is actually unfair to, to people as well, because one individual might go, well, hang on, if, it, if this system had operated when I was done eight, six months ago, I'd have been let off or I'd have had a tougher sanction or whatever. So some degree of having a system that stands the test of time um, is really important, and you can only do that on a cross-party basis. Speaking of which, what happens to the cases which you're currently considering at the moment if there's going to be a review of the system? Uh, well, you... you uh, you continue with the system that you have until such time there, as there is a new system. Um, we've not got a, uh, there's not a case before, my, I'm not meant to say this, but I'm going to, um, there isn't a case before our committee at the moment. We're not considering a report at the moment, um, but you never know when something might come out of the woodwork. But we are considering a report on the code of conduct and possible changes to the way it operates. So you're fulfilling your policy role as a, as a committee, thinking about how the standard systems Work, rather than our adjudication role. The only adjudication that we, we have had on, on our books, as it were, recently is that of Mr. Patterson. Thank you. Um, I'm going to turn now to some of the questions we've had uh, in from our audience. Thank you to everyone for sending them in, and please do continue to send them in, and also you can, I, I believe, um, upvote the ones you think are most interesting for me to ask to our guests. Um, I've got a question here from uh, Meg Russell, um, and I think uh, I, I'll put this one um, to, to, to you, Eric, first, um, because I know it's something that, you, that you've thought a lot about in the past. She says, on other matters, notably the dissolution of Parliament Bill and the abolition of the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, the government has argued that voters must be the ultimate arbiters of what is right. So why do the government and, uh, indeed, um, Owen Paterson wish to avoid arguing this case with the voters in a by-election 
if that would be the upshot of a, a, a recall petition that he might be subject to if the sanction stood that, that Chris's committee has recommended. Sure, I hope you aren't under the misapprehension that I'm here representing the government because I certainly uh, am not. Um, and of course, the recall petition does uh, preserve the, uh, um, the electors making that final decision. Um, but, but I'm not here to defend the government. Uh, I've had no discussions with the government about Mr. Patterson or, or, um, or, or, or the whips. I'm very sorry, I wasn't intending to, to imply that. I know in your past role, when you were a minister and uh, responsible for standards in local government, um, that you, you were of the view at that time that um, it, it was the, sort of the power of the ballot box was the most important way of upholding standards, ethical standards in local government. Yeah, uh, yes, it is. I mean, there was quite a lot of um, our game uh, playing in local government that people would be reported um, <clears throat> uh, in terms of, of, of breach of, um, uh, you know, of, of the ethics regime almost routinely. Um, and the most effective way of, of, of dealing with that, which was we're only really interested in, in corruption, was, uh, was via the uh, was via the police. But uh, I think this is, this is something entirely uh, different. I wouldn't seek to, um, uh, as a member of the House of Law, seek to tell the House of Commons what they're supposed to do. Uh, but what I do know is that nobody won yesterday. It was a real uh, uh, mess. And we need to come out of this and we need to try and put politics to one side. Uh, and it, it does sound as though uh, there has been some movement and uh, I, I would welcome that. But it's not, we're not going to be able to get some... Uh, movement until the fate of Owen Patterson is decided. I, I agree with that. Just one other reform I wonder about. At the moment, standards reports and the motions for them are moved by the government um, and at a time of the government's choosing. I just wonder whether that shouldn't actually be done by the committee itself and the committee should be able to decide on the timing. Um, and. Um, and then it would have made more sense, I think, in a way. This is not me talking about me, but it may sound it, but I, I just think it would have made more sense if I had moved the motion and moved it first and then anybody else speak afterwards. But um, Maybe that's one of the things that could be considered by the, um, whatever process happens now. Well, I think, we w I think in the end it will be the Standards Committee that comes up with a new process because that is the way that the House has always done it. Um, and I don't think it'll be the, the John Whittingdale Committee. I don't think that will come to pass. So I have a question here which you all might have a view on. I'm going to put it to you, Shirley, in the, in the first instance. Um, Jeff Gleisner has asked, is, not, is now not the time, is not now the time, as in, is it now the time, <laughs> <laughs> to abandon the idea of self-regulation by Parliament of its own standards? And I think, obviously... The background to this parliamentary privilege, there's always been a sense that the House of Commons should have exclusive cognizance over its own affairs. Is that still justified? Um, or as in so many other things, um, you know, on, on MPs' expenses, on their salaries and pensions, on bullying and harassment and so on, self-regulation is really being, has been pared away. Should the same happen for the MPs' code of conduct? And that's to you, Shirley, sorry. Yeah, um, in self-regulation, has there's been a move away from self-regulation in so many sectors because of the problems of it looking to the outside world or indeed being the real case that people are marking their own homework. And the thrust of our CSPL report 
is about gaining independence for regulatory bodies and getting stronger rules. Um, it, it, we, we actually um, heard relatively little about, um, or very little, about the Code of Conduct for MPs in our listening and about the um, events of the last uh, two days. We, we did ask for concerns to be about anything in, in government, um, and but we did we got a lot of noise about the four areas that we've made our big recommendations. We didn't get rec uh, concerns about this. I suspect that the move to, away from self-regulation is inevitable, um, and sits with the, uh, the the need to be able to demonstrate that you've got a strong regulatory system in place, and that's what the public need to see and develop trust in our, in our systems. So yes, I think it's probably inevitable. Chris, would you like to? Well, the question is, what, what, what does non-self-regulation of a parliamentary code of conduct mean? Um, does it mean that the rules on stationery, for instance, should be adjudicated in a court of law with lawyers and legal representation? Um, for instance, should, should paid lobbying be a criminal offence? Um, which is judged in a court of law, and in which case I guess Owen Patterson wouldn't be subject to a recall, he'd be going to prison. Um, we have another question that asks exactly this. Well, Should indeed. So, footing? I mean, the, the complaints that we heard yesterday about the lack of an option for, for appeal and so on, the need to be able to um, involve lawyers in the process, which I understand they actually were to an extent already in the, in, the, in the process, but all that does point towards the idea of maybe it should just be statutory. And, and the, you know, what historically we've always done is both houses, there, there, there isn't parliament, there's two houses, incidentally, um, uh, is that they've always um, ex exercised the right to um, finally adjudicate. I interestingly, in relation to the independent expert panel, which um, finds on cases of sexual harassment and bullying, of course, the only decision that the House or MPs can make is yay, nay, at the final vote. And that's partly because of my amendment, which said there should be no debate um, or opportunity for amendment at that point. Um, now, w w it, I guess it's possible we could end up with that. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I heard lots of MPs yesterday say they want less independence in the system. Um, and I think that's what Jacob Rees-Mogg was saying again today. And if that's the case, um, you know, there's going to be a battle. It would certainly be the opposite to the trajectory we've seen on other things, as, as Shirley was saying. Shirley, you look like you wanted to come in there. I was just going to say that um, I don't think legislation is the answer to everything. Indeed, it, it would be unfortunate if it, it was. And, and I'm reminded of Nolan's original um, three principles for the delivery of ethical standards. He talked about three things, education, scrutiny and independent regulation. And what we're doing right now is focusing an awful lot on the independent regulation discussion, but we mustn't lose sight of the education, um, which is so important. Eric, did you want to come in on, on this question about um, you know, whether we should put the system on a more um, legislative basis? I, I think a legislative basis sometimes can be elusive because ultimately Parliament has a right to change legislation and it's ultimately supreme. What is important is having a set of regulation that is open and, and transparent. 
and we need to take some of the mystery out of it. I certainly sometimes find, you know, when you're uh, talking to uh, senior civil servants or um, uh, former ministers who are uh, kind of wanting to take up uh, posts, and many of them are looking at the regulations in very minute detail. But if you're looking for a, um, a, a sort of loophole to avoid the, um, the ministerial code, you haven't entirely understood the functions of the ministerial code. And I think there is a, a very strong case uh, for, uh, for tearing the ministerial code in half, almost literally, and putting uh, the Northern principles of public right up there and central in terms of, of that's our ethics code, and, um, and revert the rest to, to, to guidelines. And I think that there has been uh, a neglect, particularly of the, I think it's the last of the um, of the principles, which is of, of leadership and people um, in authority, ministers, uh, members of parliament have a duty uh, to to set a, an appropriate tone and to uphold the, uh, those principles of public life. I guess the question in the, in the, and this is obviously for ethical standards regulators, the age old question rules versus principles. If you were to move <laughs> to that sort of system, and this is again to you, Eric, the question then would be who is the final adjudicator on whether a principle has been broken and is that an independent process you know you could easily say say to the parliamentary commissioner for standards you know that she has to adjudicate on the code but is it her adjudicating or is it who is the sort of figure you're appealing to and i think a lot of people would argue that some of the problem with um, the ministerial code at the moment is the fact that in the end you know for con good constitutional reasons the prime minister is the final sort of arbiter of whether it has been broken or not, but he doesn't necessarily have to, you know, to take account of the independent processes which are intended to sort of inform that judgment. But he has to bear the consequences of not taking an action. He has to bear the consequences of taking action. And I think, um, I mean, if you've got power, then responsibility comes with that, and with responsibility comes uh, uh, accountability. I mean, one of the uh, uh, reasons why I think a number of reforms, particularly on ACAP, have not taken place is because there's been a kind of a power grab to try and take powers away from the Prime Minister. I've never been concerned about that. My concern really is that um, that, that somebody does take a decision, that somebody does look uh, at, um, at taking action, and if they don't take action, then they're accountable. Now, we've um, regularised that by, since the beginning of this year, We've formally written uh, to the Cabinet Office explaining where people have breached the rules. I mean, it's up to them to make the decision, but I've, I've often felt that ACAP has been a convenient fig leaf to governments of all political persuasions uh, to pretend that things are happening when they're not. Just, just to, to build on this question of, you know, what is fundamentally, uh, you know, at, at stake here. There's a really interesting question from Mike Aronson that's come in, and he says, isn't the fund, and I'm going to put this question first to Chris, um, isn't the fundamental issue what Honora O'Neill characterised as trustworthiness before trust? No amount of regulation can deliver ethical behaviour on the part of people who are not trustworthy. The onus is on people in public positions to d demonstrate that trustworthiness. Uh, just interested in your view from the point of view of MPs, how you think they can go about demonstrating they are worthy of trust. Uh, Eric's talked about, you know, you know, being held accountable for adhering to a set of principles. 
how can, how can MPs, for example, as a set of people within our sort of public system, go about that? Well, I mean, if you just take the word selflessness, um, which is one of the Nolan principles, um, which obviously I support, what does it mean? Does that mean I should say I don't want to be paid as an MP? I should have no expenses. I should, um, I shall I should travel at my own expense every day to Parliament from South Wales. I don't think most people think that it does mean that. But selflessness, I mean, I think it's RuPaul said, if you can't love yourself, how can you love anyone else? Um, uh, which is fairly close, actually, to what Jesus said, um, <laughs> but in a slightly different way. Um, so I, I kind of... The, the problem about, about principles, which are really important, is they're very difficult to make justiciable. Um, how could the commissioner decide whether I had been selfless or not? It would be an entirely um, subjective judgment that she would be coming to. Um, rules are therefore really important, and making them as clear as possible is important. Uh, one of my problems with the way that the ministerial code operates is that it is completely lacking in transparency. I mean, the register of ministerial interests, most of the time, isn't even an accurate list of the ministers um, because people have resigned or whatever. Um, so it ought to be updated, as ours is in the Commons, every fortnight um, and published every fortnight. And every single finding from... Um, the advisor on ministerial um, conduct should be published in full. And then the public can decide whether the Prime Minister has made a fair judgment on the basis of the advice that has been made and take the hit or not take the hit. Um, that, I think, would be a better constitutional settlement. Um, as things stand, the danger for the Prime Minister always, any Prime Minister, is, um, uh, you know, power corrupts. And you kind of want to protect your friends. You, and every new day enters you, you know, you take an extra step down the same road. And then you find actually you're so far away from the Nolan principles that um, trust has eroded. And for me, as a lover of parliament, sorry, that sounds really weird. But I mean, as, as somebody, I've written a lot about parliament Thank in history. Man. I care about parliament. I believe that it's the best way of changing the world. Um, if parliament falls into disrepute, nobody can change the world for good. Shirley, can I put this trustworthiness point to you? Because I'm interested in your reflection on other professions which do um, seem to manage to sort of sustain trust in a way that politicians and the sort of political um, class don't manage to. How, it's a sort of holy grail, isn't it? But how do you think, um, why do you think that is the case? How, how are those people doing that in a way that's just not possible, um, doesn't seem to be possible. Perhaps it is possible. Perhaps we're just people are making the wrong decisions. I really hope it is possible because, uh, like Chris, I absolutely care uh, about the democratic process and think Parliament must must command respect and continue to command respect. Um, the point about standards are that you can't legislate against or, 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 or legislate against standards is, is really right. And what each sector has done is to turn those sec those standards into rules or codes of conduct that are relevant for their setting. Um, and so that's why they're, they're different. Um, uh, the key thing, I think, uh, for most of the professions is that they have independent um, uh, professional regulators 
and there's a relationship between the individual per professional and that professional body. And that professional body is quite separate from the employer where it works most effectively. So you can lose your job because you don't deliver the standards, whatever your employer is saying about you. Um, we've got such a different situ situation in, in Parliament. Um, and over the years, we've developed uh, all these different um, kinds of uh, parts of components of the system, which is uh, really uh, complex and hard to understand. Um, we did hear people saying that we need to create a single ethical watchdog overseer, over, over single regulator that brings it all together and simplifies it. Um, that's a very attractive idea. It's very difficult to do in practice. And so where we were in our recommendations is about saying, how do we make each part of this work better? But I think that the, the principle of independence um, and not being able to turn it over when you don't like the answer, that's got to be integrated into each part of the regulatory uh, framework in politics. And until that happens, I think it's very difficult to get the trustworthiness that you want unless conventions are all being followed in a uh, trustworthy way. Um, but we've heard that that isn't working well now. And as the Boardman Review is recommending, we would agree uh, the time of convention has come to an end and we need we need more compliance with clearer rules. Eric, can I put this to you? Would you agree with Dame Shirley that it's about it's about independence and it's about not being able to just change the system um, willy-nilly so that people don't don't know what the system is to which anyone is being held? I mean you could get quite a bit of compliance within the system uh, by doing other things. It would be quite possible, I think it is an arguable case so far as civil servants are concerned, that you could make it a breach of contract if they engaged uh, in lobbying or if they failed to take the necessary advice. Um, it will be possible uh, to um, put members of parliament, uh, beg your pardon, ministers uh, could uh, sign up uh, to a, a code whereby if they were in breach they would lose uh, financially because of, because of that process. And, and I, I, I agree wholeheartedly that it would be a mistake to have an overall, ethic, uh, overall ethics um, organisation that did everything. I think there is some strength in the separate nature and looking very carefully at the particular risks uh, that, that exist. But I think we, we need to be a little bit more flexible in terms of of the way in which we approach things. And I, I've been very worried about lobbying for um, a long time. And I think uh, I particularly welcome the idea of, of ensuring that uh, ministers and top civil servants should not be allowed to, to join uh, lobbying firms, that there should be a decent gap of five years. I think there is a case moving on to, even more onto an exception regime that if somebody is wanting to go into an area where they had responsibility, this responsibility must be on them to persuade others uh, that it's a, a legitimate thing uh, to do. And I think it's those kind of, it's um, in a way, it's, it's, we, we need not to have just one kind of shot uh, in, in our locker. We've got to be able to triangulate the problem. Uh, through a combination of regulation, employment contracts, uh, and, uh, and a code of conduct. 
Yeah, and I think it was really interesting what CSPL were proposing on that front in terms of um, more uh, robust ways in which ACABA might be able to follow up on, on breaches of, of its recommendations. I'm going to turn now to a, a question we've had in from Una Gay, um, and I'm going to put this to, to Chris to start with. And she asks, should there, and I think she's thinking about, you know, what happened yesterday and some of the factors that might have led to the sort of the, the problem um, that we saw, should there be an income cap on MPs' outside earnings? She says, I appreciate arguments about keeping in touch with the outside world through employment, but voters find the scale, and this is something you were saying, voters find the scale of outside interests completely incomprehensible for an MP supposedly working full-time. She suggests an annual cap of £50,000. <laughs> what do you think about that proposal? Um, oh, well... <laughs> The thing is, I mean, I, I, I have some earnings from writing my books. I have to say, none of them has ever earned me um, that much. Um, but um, I think the difficulty is, it's, it's perfectly legitimate for people, for instance, to work as a GP or as a lawyer. Um, a barrister might be earning considerably more than that. I, I, don't think, I don't think that the amount of money is the nub of the issue. Um, I think in this particular case, when Owen was earning, is still earning, more than £9,000 a month, it, you know, voters do start to think, well, hang on, what's your main job? Is your main job working for, the, for Randolph, or is your main job working um, for your constituents? Um, I'm, I'm, as, as things stand, I'm not in favour of a cap, um, but I can see why lots of people will be attracted to it. Uh, but in the end, you know, the you have to be able to justify to your constituents. And one of the problems is that the sword of justice does not wave um, equally in different constituencies. If you're in a northern... I mean, I just note that Ian Paisley was found guilty of something very similar to Owen Patterson um, and suspe suspended for 30 days. Um, th there was no recall petition in his constituency. Um, Chris Davis was found guilty of a lesser offence, but nonetheless, it recalled petition, and of course, he lost the by-election. Um, so the, the safety of your seat, the historic safety of your seat, um, is a material issue, and, and there's not much fairness in all of that. Dame Shirley, you, I know that CSPL has looked at this, this issue of outside interests of MPs. Do you, do you see that being uh, a factor in the you know, problems we then see with this question of paid advocacy? Um, we have looked at it, and um, we haven't made any uh, clear recommendations other than it would be unwise to stop people being able to, to continue with their outside professional uh, accreditation and um, I, I don't know what the committee would say about a cap because we haven't specifically discussed that in, in recent um, uh, years but I think we would identify many of the same problems as Chris has just outlined. Uh, sorry and incidentally there's one other problem which is um, we deal with earned income we don't deal with unearned income. Yes. So exactly. arguably there's a very difficult uh, different thing there. Eric, did you want I mean, that's exactly right. If we want to uh, get a house full of, of incredibly rich people living off uh, investment income of people of vast estates, this would be uh, a way to do it. I think ultimately it's got to be a question for the electorate to, to decide. You know, when we look at people that, that come to us in terms of, uh, of advice, we're only looking at the government's interest. But we're not looking at how much they earn. That's something they have to 
justified to the to their um, uh, electors, and the system needs to be uh, transparent. You yeah. can't have one rule for civil servants where they can go away and get enormous sums of money and not for members of parliament. But those members of parliament are in, are are responsible and accountable to their electorates and. Uh, I know a number of them are quite sensitive to the sums of money that they that they are earning. Can I just pick up and, and support that point about transparency? Um, and that's something that we've argued for in this report. And at the moment, there is, as Eric was saying earlier on, a, a really quite a lack of transparency across the departments about earnings. Um, there's, if we we can't solve the huge variations in income and geographical financial positions, but we can ensure that the public are aware of what people are earning and how they're getting that money. That's a, that's a really interesting point, and we've actually had a, a question in on this very uh, transparency point, which I guess uh, perhaps I'll put to you. Um, this uh, To begin with, um, Eric, not as a spokesman for the government, but just because I haven't put a question first to you for a while. Um, Hannah Berry asks, says, transparency will be essential for the government to rebuild trust with the public. And she's interested to hear the panel's views on how government could become more transparent. Transparency, she says, will surely encourage those who are perhaps skating the line to act more ethically. Is that something you agree with? Yeah, well, I did put a, a suggestion to the committee that... Um, uh, that uh, members of parliament, ex-ministers, should uh, should sign the register of, of lobbyists, even if they're doing things uh, in-house. Um, what could the government do? They could do a number of things. I think the, there is a reasonable point with regard to who is seeing who or not producing things on a quarterly basis. I agree with the report that maybe a, a monthly basis is something that could be happen um, uh, sooner, if possible. Uh, we need to know who is seeing who, and uh, and uh, to a degree what what they're saying. I think there is a a strong case for uh, saying that ministers uh, and senior civil servants should should not engage in in, in lobbying government. I think there is a strong case um, for ensuring that um, when people are um, a, uh, agreeing to the various conditions uh, put down in terms of confidentiality, etc. But there is a, a form of uh, even light touch monitoring to ensure that that is, uh, that is the case. Uh, but ultimately, there has to be consequences. And um, I mean, this time last year, I was in a, a terrific um, uh, a kind of uh, uh, scuffle with officials who were reluctant to the idea that Akaba. Uh, what was happening in Akaba, the people in terms of the honours list should be consulted. Now we've kind of moved on about with regard to uh, government uh, 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 appointments and the House of Lords. But that really isn't enough. We need to get, the government needs to get through uh, the threshold of credibility and people, I think, need to uh, see that there are consequences for people who don't obey uh, the, the the rules. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should try and criminalise it, but we certainly should look in terms of being able to recap uh, sums of money if people are not prepared uh, to abide by the rules. I think we've just got time for a very quick answer on this transparency point. Um, shall I come to you next, Shirley, um, and, and then Chris, and then I'm very sorry that we'll have to wrap up. 
Yes, I mean, I, just to support, I was saying, we, we, in, the, in our report, we've made a, a number of recommendations about transparency, and particularly around lobbying. Um, we've made no recommendations about the accessibility and timing of, of data about lobbying. Um, and that we've also suggested that the Cabinet Office should collate departmental information about lobbying, which is very, very variable, um, and that that should be published monthly, not quarterly, um, on a centrally managed and accessible database. Thank you. Chris, I think it should be, I completely support that recommendation, and I think that it should be coordinated with the parliamentary one, so that any member of the public who wants to know what, um, I don't know, I'm going to land on Michael Gove just because I am, what Michael Gove has received and has been up to and so on, it should all be in one place, not in two different places. It, at the moment, it's almost impossible to find out the ministerial um, register of interests and, and meetings and all the rest of it. It's all, um, I think it's done deliberately like that to be as untransparent as possible. I just want to end with one thing about lobbying. I'm a passionate supporter of lobbying. Um, when I was on the mental health bill, it was so, I'm not a mental health expert, it was so important to me that people came in from the pharmaceutical companies, from the charity, mental health charities, from the um, medical, the BMA and so on, to inform me so that I could draft the amendment, which is now the law, and I could do it on the basis of knowledge. There was nothing untoward about it. It was perfectly, and, and the pharmaceutical companies were just as welcome as the med mental health charities. But you just need to be able to know where you, the individual MP, have a commercial interest and that's where I'm afraid we're in a bit of a quagmire at the moment. Thank you. Well, can I um, say a big thank you to uh, the, my panel uh, for a really fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you to you at home for joining us for what I hope has been as fascinating a discussion for you as for me. This is the second of our four events which we're holding today. This afternoon we'll be joined by standards commissioners from Ottawa and from Belfast, as well as Duncan Hames from Transparency International to talk about what the UK government can learn from its counterparts around the world and in the devolved administrations. And then the conference will close with reflections from Peter Riddle, until recently public appointments commissioner, on how the public appointments process, something we didn't have time to, to touch on today, can be improved. Please do join as many of these events as you can. All the information is on our website, and they will all be, uh, recordings of the events will all be online uh, as soon as possible as we can within 24 hours after the event. Thanks very much, everyone.